Weather can be a funny thing. It can change on you at a moment's notice. It's probably best to have two thin coats. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. This is episode 57. In this episode, I am speaking with the one, the only, everybody's favorite painting tutor, Duncan Rhodes. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> oh, you. You're too kind. Oh, Duncan, thank you for coming on the show. I, <laughs> I got to say, um, it did come as a bit of a surprise when the news dropped that you were leaving GW, and more mm. on that later. Mm. And I thought, this, this is the time to go ahead and talk to Duncan, because not... I don't think you necessarily had a, a muzzle order from your folks at GW, but mm-hmm. I, I can imagine you had a muzzle order. <laughs> um, <laughs> at least not talking to outside outside uh, media. Um, not not specifically. It wasn't that. Um, I mean, the sort of the coming about of Warmer community and the, the size it's grown to um, has been quite an organic process, and there was never really a thing of telling me you will not speak like this or you know that kind of stuff. It's more common sense because I was aware that um, I was very much representing the business, so I thought mm-hmm. it would be wrong for me to go and say things you know on behalf of the business without them actually saying I could say such things. Um, it was the same with other games and things like that, you know, like saying, "Oh, I play this game." it seemed like it would be um, a bit irresponsible of me to go and do that, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that's fair enough. You know, yeah. I, I yeah. get it. Yeah. I get I've done some podcasts before, but, uh, but yeah, now okay. it's quite an interesting experience because there's sort of, you know, I, uh, <laughs> there, there's, there's still a level of responsibility, but um, I think I can talk about so many things. So it's quite exciting, really. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll scratch the surface of Duncan Rhodes here in a moment. And we're going to start by asking you the same question I ask every new guest, and that is, what makes you a veteran wargamer? Um, well, I can't claim to be a veteran in terms of any sort of military service or anything like that. Um, I'm quite a slender guy. I don't think I'd survive very long. Uh, but I do, uh, I do ha- I have, I have collected three different Napoleonic armies, so I think that counts. Um, Huzzah! Yeah, yeah, you know, to do the research and work out all the uniforms and learn a bit about the history. Um, Napoleonics, I think, is a bit of a hurdle to get into. Um, so I feel quite proud that I've managed to do that with um, three armies over the years. Um, and I, mean, I suppose I could say the the Warhammer TV thing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Does that count? Um, <laughs> I, I would think so, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really think of myself as a veteran wargamer as such. More just like I'm just a wargamer. I just like my toys and my games and, you know, uh, sharing this hobby with people. I think it's a really wonderful hobby that gives so many um, great experiences and skills and, you know, makes um, loads of friends. I mean, you must have the same thing with um, the sort of people you end up interacting with. You just end up acquiring friends for life through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a really good um really wholesome hobby because of that sort of thing so um yeah so i'll let's consider myself more of a veteran more kind of like i'll just concentrate on having a good time and sharing it with people fair enough um now where where did you get your start though in the hobby um so in wargaming in general i actually uh, i was in i was a model maker before it mm-hmm. um so for christmas one year my parents bought me some airfix kits um there's like this box where you got um, three airplanes and some paints um and I thought this was amazing because I used to build Lego things and stuff at that point. But mm-hmm. I thought, oh, my God, these, these models are incredible. 
And so I became kind of addicted to making airfix kits. Um, and one day my dad took me to this model shop that was in a town called Ashby de la Zouche in uh, Derbyshire. And in there, they had a stand with Warhammer 40,000 stuff on there. Mm. And um, I, you know, I was getting into things like Star Wars and stuff at the, you know, around about then. Um, in fact, I was quite, uh, I was quite a Star Wars nerd around then. And I saw the, uh, the Space Marines and I thought, oh my God, they look amazing. They're like Stormtroopers and Darth Vader with bigger guns. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I've got to get some of those. And my dad knew there was a Games Workshop in Derby. So the following week we, uh, we went in and um, yeah, I bought a box of Space Marines and I didn't look back really. Um, the weird thing was the guy who sold them to me was um, the guy who later would employ me for retail. Um mm. Um, and I've known him ever since, really. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I just started playing these games, and it, it kind of I found it odd buying the same thing more than once. Because you know, if you build a model airplane, right? If you're buying a Spitfire, you buy one right. Spitfire. But if you're doing Space Marines and you get a Predator, and you think that's really cool, well, you want another Predator. So right. it's quite a, a, an experience starting to collect these armies and build it and start to get into the narrative. And I found it was the story that really took me, because with all the model airplanes and things, it was you know like World War Two and whatever that kind of got me excited. This was the same thing, but being this fictional universe, I was like, this is amazing. This is, there's so much stuff here. So I started reading the novels and all the codex books and all this kind of stuff. So all my armies became very narrative-driven as the characters were taking along with it. Mm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I was really into that. And then um, I kind of uh, I started dabbling with Warhammer Fantasy. Um, and I, uh, I eventually, for my birthday, I got given some spending money. So I was able to go and get the, uh, the Fantasy Battles core game and started toying with that. That was very complicated, though, at the time. I mean, even mm. second edition 40K was very complicated at the time. So I was quite light in the gaming, again, more the models and the painting. Right. Um, and uh, and it was around about that time that um, Gladiator came out. And I went yes. with my dad to go and see Gladiator. And, um, you know, he knew I was into military history and stuff because we watched, like, Sharp, you know, the TV show and stuff like that together and things. But watching Gladiator made me think, Romans are amazing. I wonder if you can get Warhammer Romans. Um <laughs> And yeah, so by chance, I ended up encountering Wargames Foundry and saw that they were Roman Warhammer. And I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, and I just kind of started becoming more aware of historicals from that point on. But I genuinely mm-hmm. thought that I discovered them and no one else knew about them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is very naive, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, I've always then realized that Wargaming encompasses a whole manner of things. And Games Workshop and Warhammer is a fantastic kind of entryway into this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and there are so many things out there, so many wonderful games and miniatures and things to explore that it's um, it can take up your entire lifetime doing these things. Oh yeah, it's one of the it's one of the great things I like about the the overarching hobby is that there is there is a subject for everyone. Yes, you know, yes, absolutely. Everybody can find something if they just take the time to look, or you know, ask for help in looking for it and. And I got to say, those those Foundry early Imperial Romans, those are at the top of my list for historical figures. Also, sculpted. Oh really? Uh, oh yes, I, I love those figures. Um, I was actually given. Uh, my mom referred to my miniatures as your little critters, <laughs> and she bought me uh, one Christmas. She bought me a a a sizable chunk of the early Imperial Roman figures. Oh and, wow. Uh, yeah, I just love them. They're just great emotive sculpts, and the mm-hmm. the officers look truly imperious, and mm-hmm. they're just fantastic. So I'm with you. I'm with you on the early Imperial Roman stuff and mm-hmm. uh, Gladiator movie and the thinking, whole deal. Oh, sorry. Um, I keep thinking I'd love to do a, a, a 
I guess it's because it's around the time of Warhammer Ancients. Um, I suppose that makes it sort of old hammer in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, a thing I'd love to do is a, um, a Warhammer Ancients army of Imperial Romans versus um, some uh, Germanic Gauls, I guess. Um, and uh, I think that would be a really fun project using those old miniatures. Then I keep looking at the Vixtrix ones that come out not too long mm-hmm. ago, and I'm like, wow, those are amazing sculpts. But then there's the old ones, and so I just keep going back and forth, you know, trying to decide. You know? <laughs> well, you know, you can put them on the same table, maybe not in the same unit, but certainly on the yeah. same table, and wouldn't they wouldn't look too too bad, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess so. <laughs> you could satisfy both satisfy both uh, both options that way easily enough. Absolutely, yeah, and I, I think it'll be a, a fun um, a fun project to go. Well, I suppose it, certainly like, like things like characters and things, you can use them to like, make mm-hmm. little command groups and command bases. You can mix up the figures a bit around there. Um, mm-hmm. But they say it's like it's a weird sort of nostalgic attachment to these things. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, how else do you yeah. explain the, the old hammer movement, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I find the old hammer movement fascinating. Um, and I've, I've dabbled a little bit with it. I've not fully thrown into any of the things on it yet. But, um, I mean, for... I, for me, when I first got into the hobby, the miniatures around then are, are such a powerful draw to me. It's such a magical time. And I always find whenever I see them, I can't help but like you know, want to paint models like that. Yeah. Even though the modern sculpts are superior, um, you know, there's no getting around that, I still want to paint some miniatures with goblin green bases. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I find it a curious thing to think that people getting into the hobby these days are going to have the same attitude towards primary space marines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's a very odd um, but really wonderful thing yeah uh, it, i suppose it's like nostalgia video gaming as well yeah i know that's a thing that people like to do yeah the, um, the 8-bit you know aesthetic and and a lot hmm. of it is is the aesthetic and if if you go hmm. on the on the old hammer facebook groups every once in a while somebody asks well what's what is old hammer and hmm. i i've kind of defaulted to old hammer is the version of warhammer that came out when you were in high school yes yes exactly you know and or when you whenever you got started you know whether you were in high school or not, but so for me that's Rogue Trader Second Edition, yes, and then Warhammer Fantasy Battle Third Edition with the Realm of Chaos books. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which uh, I, I have to note that whoever is in charge of the old or the, the Warhammer community in at GW headquarters is definitely they have found a way to get the old Hammer guys that said. I'm never buying anything from GW again. Well, they figured out a way to do that, and with the re, you know with the republication of the Rogue Trader book, now the Realm of Chaos yeah. books. So yeah, yeah. I think um, I think you should embrace it. It's uh, it's obviously not the the big the big thing. You know, the big draw is of course the new the new thing that comes out. Um, but people get such an attachment to it. I think you have to embrace it. Um, I think that's it's something you got to respect, uh, especially when you had things like the beginning of Age of Sigmar and of course the old world being destroyed. Um, there are a lot of people who are very emotionally attached to the old world. Um, mm-hmm. I think Modern Games Workshop realizes that and respects it. Um, so I, if something like that were to happen again, I'm sure the whole process would be handled very differently. Um, but then you can see the respect to it with some of the uh, sort of more old school games um, being reimagined and re-released in a more modern, right. you know, better miniatures and things. Especially the old world announcement. That took me by surprise. Um, I was certain that was going to happen, but I didn't think it would happen mm-hmm. that soon. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited to see what happens. Um, I actually traded a friend of mine for a sizable Empire army, and it's made up of mm. quite a... It's actually mostly... It's actually almost all metal mm. with uh, 
you know, third and fourth edition era metal figures and a few, mm-hmm. and actually quite a few foundry figures as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was talking to him the other day and he said, yeah, I'm kind of bummed about the, uh, about the announcement about the old world coming back since I traded to that army. But, uh, you know, Hey, warlords got some really nice lands connects. So, that's true. That's so, true. Yeah. The plastic ones, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to work out for everybody, I think. So, um, as I look at the show notes here, um, so you said that you started working retail GW at, at the yeah. Derby store or at a different store? Yes. Yeah, that's right. It was the Derby store. Um, so that was the one I first visited. And mm-hmm. um, basically what happened was I got to um, doing my exams for my A-levels to be able to apply to university. And I got my results. And I got a placement in university, I think it was Winchester, doing archaeology. And I was very excited about this. And my friend Nathan and I, we decided to celebrate by going to the cinema. Um, and the, the new film at the time was Terminator 3. Mm. and I'd become a bit of a lapsed hobbyist at that point because of exams and things um, and when I went there and I saw the uh, the, the robots, you know, the, the T-800s aren't they, and it made me think oh yeah, the Necrons, I used to really like the Necrons and the last time I've been into the hobby they were all metals mm-hmm. um, which I still love I love those old, with the goofy yeah. faces they're, they're so charming um, and I wonder if they've changed, so I had a look on the website when I got back home and saw the new Necron, the Plastic Warriors and the reimagined range and the new background and the like things like the monolith and stuff. And it blew my mind. I was like, how, when did all this come out? This is incredible. It was way better than that tower stuff. Um, so I went into the, the store um, like a few days later and ended up buying a box of Necron Warriors. And it was Chris Peach that served me at the till. Hmm. Um, and I needed a summer job. So I asked him about it. Um, he gave me some details. He taught me how to play the game again. This was third edition. This would have been the very end of third edition. Um, and I ended up... Um, applying for the job and getting it. So I found myself working in Games Workshop Retail and I had such fun doing it and made such good friends that I just ended up staying there rather than going to university. <laughs> and uh, I do often wonder how my life would have gone had I gone to university instead. Um, but I'm sure I wouldn't have ended up with the same um, really good friends that I have now. Um, and it would have ended up a very different life and I, I don't think I'd be been quite so happy. Um, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was great getting back into it, relearning the game and um, working in the retail chain. And I found that it was really fun because you ended up connecting with customers in quite a personal way, um, in a, a way I didn't expect. Because, I mean, the Games Workshop retail job is a very hard job, I think. Mm-hmm. It's somewhat thankless um, because you're just the staff that people forget. But you find yourself in all sorts of situations where, especially with kids when they're, you know, they're going uh, into their teenage years and things and they're changing and they're having all these new experiences and things. And sometimes you find them telling you things that you sort of, um, I suppose they view you like an older brother or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a completely unexpected side effect of essentially like working in a shop selling these toys. Um, but you end up giving them um, a place to be, um, a place where they can be themselves and you give them confidence. And um, when you have new people as well, when they want to learn how to do a thing and you show them how to do it, it's really exciting and enriching when you see them I understand, oh, that's how you shade things. That's how you do that. And then they get the result and you see them run off to go and show people and they're dead excited about it. I found these things to be absolutely magical and they completely absorbed me into it. Um, mm-hmm. So it was the community that really held me in retail. Um, I, I was, <laughs> I'm not a good salesman. You know, I'm not good at, so are you going to buy this today and all this kind of stuff. That's not my, <laughs> uh, that's not my thing. Um, but I absolutely loved um, somebody going, oh, I want to learn to 
I want to collect Rohan. I don't know what to do. It's like, oh, okay, well, what you want to do is get this box, this box, and this. Get these. Tell you what, start with this one. I'll show you how to paint them, and then show them how to paint a horse. And you right. can see how excited they've done it. And, you know, then show the game and show how fun it is. And you find someone then that's um, suddenly become excited for just this absolutely wonderful thing, and they start making friends with, through it. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's the best bit of work in retail. Um, but you are that front line that mm. people encounter as they're getting into the hobby so the experience you give them is the thing that they'll remember like all those years later um so i think it's uh yeah it's a very hard job often to keep that um that enthusiasm going all the time so yeah, yeah i've got uh, a lot of respect for these workshop staff members I'll, I'll always like to have a chat with them and see what how they're doing yeah i i still remember you know my my first pusher and <laughs> <laughs> yes. um you know, my, my first experience, you know, buying war game figures for myself. And, mm. you know, that was, a, I've talked about it in the past is a, at a shop called Yankee doodle in Kansas city. And the guy who, uh, uh, guy who ran, it was a dude named Scott Newberry. And I, I found out, mm. uh, at the last war game convention I went to in Kansas city at the recruits show that unfortunately Scott had passed in the, in the last year. Oh. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it, it, you're exactly right about the, the, f the first person that you come up, I don't want to say mm. against, but your first uh, retail experience is so formative and, mm. and that really pinpoints why a invite or an inviting, comfortable atmosphere is so important, mm. not just in what the store offers, but also how the store is laid out, the cleanliness of the store. You know whether or not there's that one fluorescent tube that's flickering ominously in the in the yes. back corner, and <laughs> you know, and you know whether or not there's you know garbage from you know twenty box chicken McNuggets, you know, just lying mm. open on the floor or whatnot, and yeah. that comfortable, inviting atmosphere and friendly friendly people are so important because we're we're losing retail game and hobby stores every day. Yes. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, um, there's one here in Springfield that, that closed recently due to basically personal reasons. Um, mm. The guy that was running it had, you know, or has a son who's got some health issues. And he, I think he did the right thing. You know, got to take care of family first. But, uh, um, you know, you, you definitely remember the good experiences more than you do the bad experiences. And you keep going back yes. to where you have the good experiences. Yes. And, yes, um, and it, and that's so important, especially for, you know, adolescent males and I suppose mm. adolescent females as well. And that's why, you know, I like to see, you know, more inviting uh, atmosphere for for everybody, because like I said earlier, and mm. I've said many times on this podcast, on other podcasts, the hobby is a big tent and there is something for everybody in the hobby. Yes. And if we can be as inviting as we can for everybody, I think it's just a net benefit. Well, for everybody. Absolutely. So, yeah. It's. It, it's vitally important. It really is. It's like the future of the hobby. Um, I think it's one of the reasons that I, I, I very much loathe elitism when it comes to this sort of stuff, mm. um, which I'm sure we've all seen it. But, you know, when you often have the uh, there's the guy in the store who's the top gamer who always wins, mm -hmm. um, but they don't just win. They, they like win, win. Like, uh, right. It's, it's a, everyone has to know that they've won. And it's the same with painting. There's, you often get a lot of elitism in painting as well. Um, 
And I had my brief encounter with that sort of thing when I was asking some questions. I mean, I, I talked once on the Games Workshop podcast about it when I, um, when I was little. And I talked to the, the staff member of the store I was in. And um, I basically asked him, I, I didn't know what I was asking, but I was asking, how do you put a wash on something? I was looking at a rhino, the sort of little grill that's on the front of it, and I wanted to know how to shade it. And I plucked up the courage to ask him, but his answer was so dismissive and sort of sneering that I found it very, um, it stuck with me, um, which is why I, I'm so determined to be open about everything. But you see the same thing when it comes to gaming too. Um, sure. There was a day we in our store when I was in retail, we had on the bank holidays, we'd have a challenge the staff kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But this one particular day happened to become really busy and neither of us were able to play against this lad who's come in to play for the first time. And you can see for him, it was a, he had to pluck up the confidence to actually come in and play in a sure. public setting. He made a great army. It was a Farsight Enclaves Tau army. And um, this was quite a number of years ago. So this is the old far site that was based on the the, the Crisis Battlesuit miniature, you know, with mm-hmm. the metal shield and stuff. But he painted his army. It's all thematic. It was very cool. And um, so we had to get him to play against somebody. And he ended up, um, the person that stepped in to do it was someone who was a very good gamer. But uh, for whatever reason, this game went very, very, very far against the guy with the towel. And he got tabled very quickly by... Um, what would you call it? A beardy list or something? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the terminology is nowadays. But yeah, he got tabled very quickly. And you can see he then just packed up and left very quickly. And I was like, oh no, like that's the experience he's going to remember. Right. That's not what you need to walk away from that game laughing and having had a great time. And I felt so bad about that happening. Um, but these things, they are important. I mean, once someone's an experienced gamer, like that sort of stuff happens. That's just the way it is. Some people like that kind of game. Um, but if you've got to read your opponent, you've got to understand what they want. And if they're new, if you present them with a game that they don't like, they're not going to come back. And then you don't right. have that opponent. So, uh, right. yeah, these things, they're hugely important. And I, I'm quite glad to see that gaming companies are are um, bearing this in mind now with new products that they come out with. You know, they're making things more accessible and more beginner orientated with more experience mm-hmm. behind. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think, that's, I think it's um, very important. Yeah, I think that that's an important point there because again, something I've said before is that when you agree to play a game with somebody, you're entering into a contract. You're entering into a contract with them that you're both there to have fun. Hmm. And whatever fun means to you, you need to make sure that you're, um, you know, especially with a new gamer. And I'm not saying, you know, take it easy on them necessarily. Hmm. But if you are a more experienced gamer, and it, it's on you to make sure that they understand what's going on. Because let's face it, these these rule systems, and they truly are systems that get mm-hmm. developed, especially in a in an environment like Warhammer, mm-hmm. they are very complex beasts. You know, the, yeah. the underpinnings okay. might be very simple. You know, at, at the end of the day, Warhammer 40,000, 8th edition is four pages of rules. Yes. However. <laughs> yes. There's a lot extra on top of that. <laughs> There's a lot of extra on top of that. So yeah. it's it's really important that you know we we strive to understand and maybe be, and maybe part of it is um you know, it, there's a lot of complex human dynamics that go on when you play a game with someone. For example, mm. um, have you ever played the game uh, Diplomacy? Um, no, but I am aware of it. Okay, I Diplomacy. I, I like to refer to Diplomacy as the game that ends friendships. <laughs> like monopoly <laughs> oh way more than monopoly because oh. there, there's an undercurrent to diplomacy which is you know the best way to win is mm-hmm. to never lie except once 
(laughs) 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 Oh God. And which one was the lie? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's just one of those games where you have to know going in that it's going to (laughs) hurt, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know, it's, it's not the type of, and, and that's, what's great about, about the hobby is again, there's something for everyone. If you don't like that type of game, then mm-hmm. hopefully you can make an informed decision. You don't play it. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, I can totally get where you're coming from with, you know, that young man with the Tau army being mm-hmm. downcast. And, um, I, I hope he came back or I hope you saw him again. I, I don't recall seeing him again in the Derby store. Uh, um, which is why it's something that stays with me so much. Um, yeah. I really hope he got back into it. I really do. Mm-hmm. And I promised myself, you know, if, if I see him again, I'm going to play a game against him and it's going to be the best game that we, we've ever had. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I never quite saw him. Um, yeah, it's uh, it it's yeah, it's a real shame. Like I say, it stays with me quite a bit. But, you yeah. know, these things are the formative things, aren't you? That kind of determine where your mind ends mm-hmm. up at. So that's, I think that's um, driven a lot of what my career has ended up being. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, like, for me, it's, you know, like, you know, teaching more experienced skills and things like that, that's all cool, but I always want it to be as welcoming as possible in all ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I often find myself wondering that. And, and even when working at Games Workshop, I'd often kind of challenge myself to get into a new game to see what the accessibility is like and to remind myself what it's like for somebody new. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I, I found that to be a fun challenge, you know, to go, all right, let's take a look at, um, yeah, pick one off shelf, you know, like Hail Caesar. All right, I want to go and play Hail Caesar. What do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, what things are there and stuff? And so, how does this look to somebody new? And bear in mind that that then also looks like somebody getting into Warhammer for the first time. You know, the right. mates are into it. So, the mum just gets them a paint set with some space marines and things. All right, how do you do this? Um, so, then you can, when you make a video to accompany it, you can do it in a sort of way to help that that person that target to lead them into it because there's going to be if they want to then learn further things there's going to be plenty of things there um and there's lots of very advanced painters who do lots of very advanced lessons and things um i kind of view it as like if you want to go on to that stuff then absolutely but there's a whole host of people who still are, are so important at this early stage and mm-hmm. I, I don't ever want to forget that yeah well for me personally being you know having been in the hobby for oof more than 30 years at this point, you know, mm-hmm. I, I gotta say, I'm not a great painter, <laughs> but I, I certainly enjoy the approach that you and, and Chris take to, uh, to teaching the craft and the art of, of just getting figures on the damn table. <laughs> you know? mm. Yes. Yes. You know, while, getting, them, getting them on so they look cool and so you have a good time with them. Yeah. Cause while I respect the folks that can do the, you know, the, the golden demon level folks and the crystal mm-hmm. brush fo- level folks. I respect that level of artistry. Mm-hmm. That's not anything that I, that I aim for. I aim for, you know, three colors and some sand on the base and let, <laughs> let's go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Then you can like, just go and enjoy yourself. And everybody's different for that sort yeah. of thing. So that's the kind of thing that you always got to remember. Everyone has their own standard of what they want their thing to look like and what they want to achieve and what part of the hobby they like the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of my mates who's, uh, he, he loves the Warhammer 40,000. He absolutely adores it. He reads all the heresy books, all the background books. He loves it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he's not a fan of painting. He doesn't really enjoy it. Um, so we found ways around it. I mean, a number of years ago, I painted stuff for him. Um, but I, he, when he plays the game, he's into that story. His army's built with that story in mind and everything's done with that. Um, 
that's just as valid a way as the absolute top table competitive gamers who are working out what the most efficient builds are for all the, the things that they want to have. These exactly. things are both equally valid. Oh yeah. Um, you just bear in mind that you know everyone's an individual and has their own thing. I think when you're actually getting into the gaming and you're kind of going in on your own and um, wanting to play against more people, it's up to you to identify what it is you like, and then you got to sort of like look around for that similar thing. Because I think if you are a very competitive gamer and you end up playing against a narrative gamer, you um, you'll probably win, um, but I don't think you'll have the challenge that you want. You mm -hmm. might have that sort of competition of like, yeah. you know, who's the, the best with these playing pieces and things. So I think for all these different elements, it's important to find what you're after and get equal, you know, equal sort of people. Yeah. And it goes back to that contract that I mentioned earlier, you know. Exactly. Yes. Um, yes. You know, when you've got, you know, if, if you're wanting to play a friendly game and you're going up against a known rules lawyer, eh, you're probably not going to have a great time. Yeah, brace yourself. Yeah, you know. So, and, and I found that out the hard way early on, also, and then I never played with that guy again. So, mm -hmm. but but I get it. Um, I I definitely appreciate the the inclusivity and uh, the 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 approach that you're taking to the overall hobby, and I, I think it's it's really it's really great to hear uh, people like yourself. Uh, and I mentioned in the last episode, I, I wanted to hear more about inclusivity and, uh, you know, from major figures such as yourself in, in the mm. hobby this year. And um, are you familiar with Annie Norman in Bad Squiddo Games? Yes. Yes, I'm aware. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah I've seen she's, her gaming shows. Yeah. Yeah. She's been great for inclusivity with including women and realistic portrayals of women in our games. And I, I got to say, I, I hope to see and hear more of this in the upcoming years. So hopefully... Folks, if you're listening, you know, and if you've got your own story to tell, you know, get out there and tell it. And heck, maybe mm. I'll even have you on the show. So if you if you're listening and you've got your own tale of inclusivity, let me know. We'll ha we'll have you on the show. We'll talk about it. So <laughs> somewhere between working retail at Darby and making mm. making uh, a a whole raft of painting videos for GW. There was an in-between time. What was in that in-between yes. time? Um, so I worked in retail for about four years, almost to the day, um, when I went out to go and get a real job, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> as my parents would have called it. So they kept asking me, when are you going to get a real job? Um, <laughs> I didn't feel like management was for me at mm -hmm. Games Workshop. So um, off I went and ended up getting um, an office job at this company called Costa. Um, so not the coffee company. This is a, it's an Italian company that makes things like... Um, controllers for central heating systems and things like that. It's very important stuff to have a nice house, but it's not exactly exciting either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was kind of the office guy, so I was distributing orders and, you know, uh, sending out invoices and all this kind of stuff. And it paid well, but um, I didn't enjoy it. Um, certainly not in the way I had been enjoying things and kind of fulfilling sure. in the same way. Um, and meanwhile, Peachy, who had been my manager, he went on into working in the design studio in what they called the hobby team. Mm -hmm. um, who was uh, responsible for well, the hobby content you saw in publications. So the large armies you see in backgrounds or the painting guides or white dwarf content, that sort of thing. And another job offering came up and he told me about it and said, you'd probably be good at this. And um, so I was still painting armies and things in the meantime. Um, so I applied for it and um, and I got it. And I, I felt very you know, lucky and honored to, do, to get it. And I threw myself into it and learned as much as I could from all these incredible people around me um, to improve what I was doing and get quicker and um, 
trying well just learn more about it really and I ended up doing that job for um i believe it was four years again mm-hmm. um, almost to the day weirdly um and that was a, that was an amazing experience that was working on these books in the background because the first thing that i was working on really when i joined was um warhammer fancy eighth edition okay. and that's when they upgraded all the units to hordes so uh, one of the first job is to paint an extra 20 guys to go in the back of these units to make them bigger Oh god! <laughs> quick. The next two heavy metal miniatures, so you better do them well. Right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I spent a number of years doing that, um, and that went. My main responsibility after we finished fantasy was working on content for White Dwarf. Um, so I did lots of painting guides for that, and then they started evolving into the armies that you saw in Codex books, and they'd have a downloadable painting guide for like iPads and stuff, and I kind of got into that. But the guides is always my favourite. Um, thing to work on so it came along that um the citadel paint range was being updated you know all things like blood red and stuff were going and being replaced with mephiston red and all that right um and they wanted to make a book to go along with it and that was about the time that the tv studio started and that was founded to do um social media videos to advertise the models basically um now one of the guys in there was pushing for us doing painting guides and so it came about that well, maybe in this book, we could make a DVD to go with it that illustrates all the things in the book. Wicked idea. We need a painter. Duncan schedules more free than everyone else, so he can do it. Okay. <laughs> um, so as simple as that. Right place, right time. And um, so then I met uh, Roger Yates, who was the guy who was um, pushing for these things. And um, so at the time, there were only two guys in the TV studio. That's um, <laughs> There's so many more now, but yeah, just two people. And... Um, so we started working on this um, this stuff for the DVD, and the format was just like you only saw my hands. Whilst um, it was Adam Troke was doing the voiceover for it, and the, I remember that it was tricky at the time working out the format of how to show these things. Um, also, because I was used to leaning in, looking closely at what I was doing, my head would keep drifting forward during a shot. So they had to hang this <laughs> pendulum from the ceiling, so that I'd sort of like bash my head against it and realise I'm going too close. <laughs> So, yeah, they had all these, I think, there were also um, markers put on the table so I could put my hands in the correct position so everything would be the same. It was it was very clunky, and mm-hmm. <laughs> we were there for quite a long time. Um, but people liked the format, and Roger thought that this could go further, we can do more with this, so he kept on pestering his boss about it with his ideas. Um, and eventually he managed to um, get me allowed to spend, um, it was two days, working on um, his own idea for a format for a, a hobby video. Um, so he asked for me to go along again because I was aware of how it worked and also because the two of us seemed to have very similar ideas about unlocking the hobby is how, kind of how we termed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he got me in and we ended up doing a video that was a how to build a riptide battle suit. Um, so if, if you think of like an ins- a replacement for the instruction booklet in the box. Um, right. So this video is like two hours long. It's very boring. because <laughs> <laughs> every piece being glued together and mold lines removed and all that stuff and posing and all these things. Um, but... He edited it together quickly and showed it to his boss. And his boss thought, yeah, this is great. Wicked. All right, we'll make a job. Presenter. So for the first time, a presenter for painting miniatures appears as a full-time job. And uh, Roger gets very excited about this. He ran down the afternoon after this had happened to find me in the studio. And he was like, this job's going up. You want to think about applying for this, mate, because I think we could really make something of this. And I was like, oh, my God, uh, <laughs> this is scary. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so I find myself kind of like not knowing what to do because I really liked my hobby um, team job um i ended up talking to some friends in the car on the way home from work because we carpooled then and they were like that sounds amazing you gotta do it my parents were like yeah you gotta do that and so i just uh, i went for it decided you know who knows how this is going to turn out may as well try it and see what happens 
but it was scary because Games Workshop at the time had no public facings. There was no names on anything, right. even the novels at the time, but no names in them. Um, so it would just be me. Um, and Roger really wanted that format of a friendly face showing you what to do. So he wanted my name on it and he wanted my face to be shown there. So he had a battle to get that done. Um, and yeah, then the first videos went out, which I think was the Imperial Night ones, if I remember right. Okay. Um, and we spent about three months practicing and learning. He spent that time training me how to present. He had me doing mm -hmm. exercises like watching the news and repeating what the anchor was saying. So I talk at the same sort of pace and put the right sort of inflections on my voice and all this kind of stuff. Um, there was also lots of practice about getting my hands in the right place and not getting in the way of myself, but also giving him lots of, because it's, it's like driving a car, right? You, you kind of, you got the stuff in front of you and you're obviously narrating what you're doing, but at the same time, you've got to talk to the camera to your left as if you're talking to somebody. Mm -hmm. You've got to make sure you don't get in the way of the one over your shoulder because that's like the, the money shot. You know, that's the most important one. Right. Um, and you've got to kind of go along giving the editor footage on all three of these cameras that they can use at any time. So when they edit together, they can jump between them to show the key thing at that time. Um, so it took a while to get used to that, and he, he went really into training me on it. But yeah, by the time it actually came out, I'm kind of wooden because I'm still trying to remember all these things. But uh, people love yeah. the videos, yeah. and so like all of a sudden it just took off. It was um, it, it, very weird, very very weird. Mm -hmm. um, I was lucky to be there, definitely. Um, but for me, it was exciting because it meant that the thing I really love doing of helping to unlock this stuff for people, of you know teaching them these little effects that they won't necessarily know, um, it allowed me to do that um, on such a grand scale. Um, so I found it so so fulfilling and so rewarding. Um, uh, at first, it was very kind of quiet and that you were sort of isolated in the studio, just making these things and not really knowing what's going on. But the first time I met somebody at a show who showed me the model that they painted following the video, it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that sounds like a, a lot of fun. And it kind mm. of uh, it's kind of interesting how it's almost as if Roger had tailored you know, tailored the whole pitch to mm. help you make that happen. So, uh, like you said, right place, right time, but right person in the right place at the right time. Well, it yes, seems like. I think I, I always feel um, so Roger and I would become we became a very close knit team working on these things because just the two of us in this soundproof room day in, day out. Mm -hmm. um, we got to know each other very well. And um, we'd often go to get like a coffee at Bookman's Bar together or something like that. And um, people would recognize me. And they'd want to talk to me and mm -hmm. roger would be there and i'd be like i'm only half the team i'm the face of this team but he's the body of it you know he's right um the guy who designed all this stuff and puts all the work in that no one notices and he's he's always been like cool with that you know he's like this is just how it is uh, when a when a film's made you everyone notices the stars but they don't notice all the people in the credits right um but that's always it, it sat very uncomfortably with me um so i've often found myself talking to people about so i'd introduce him and sometimes you get people going wow that's amazing and want to know like his theory behind why it's done the way it's done mm -hmm. um so it's uh yeah it, it's um been tricky sort of rationalizing that people want to talk to me but it's only part of the team but it's, it's nice to be able to talk in a podcast like this and basically tell people that roger exists and he did all this stuff um and I, honestly i think without him there it wouldn't have happened yeah um, and they certainly wouldn't have been um they wouldn't we wouldn't have achieved really good results in the way that we did um, mm -hmm. so it's yeah it, it's, all, it's a team effort right now now i have to ask i have mm. to ask because I've, I've listened to a few episodes of the vox cast mm. and listening to a number of different gw staffers do 
I mean, is it like a is it like a job requirement to have a pleasant speaking voice between you and Wade Price <laughs> and Jeff Goodwin? And <laughs> <laughs> um, no, not necessarily. Um, Games Workshop has a thing. Um, so they recruit people for a good fit into the culture of the business. Mm -hmm. um, so they want people who are good people, um, essentially. So um, the people we see on podcast and, and things—they're they're, all—they're all lovely. They're absolutely lovely. Jez Goodwin's amazing. He's such a nice guy. He's got yeah. a very calming voice. He's like—he's yes. um, like the the captain on the ship, you know, when everything's mm -hmm. going wrong and stuff. He's like, "Don't worry, we're going to get through this." Yeah, we are, Jez. Yeah, we are. Yeah. He, <laughs> I. I loved the episode of the Voxcast with Jez Goodwin. Um, mm. If if you are an, enough of an old Hammer fan to remember White Dwarf episode one, not episode <laughs> White Dwarf <laughs> one twenty seven, it's got an elf dragon prince on the cover, and it has all of Jess Goodwin's sketches in concept art mm. for the reborn Eldar. Mm -hmm. and, or the initial, the big, the big resurrection of Eldar, I guess you could say, after Rogue Trader, mm -hmm. where they mm -hmm. nailed, he absolutely nailed the look of the Eldar, and you yes. see those same design cues to this day, with yes, uh, you know all the gems and the aspect warriors and the guardians, and um, I'm not sure if he didn't design the the Harle the original metal Harlequins as well. Um, yeah, I believe he did. I'm pretty sure he designed the original Eldar Pirates, which are among my favorite 40K figures. But it was just, it was so cool hearing how the, you know, the design process works and why things look the way they do. Mm -hmm. And that and like, you know, he, he definitely has a very calming, pleasing speaking voice. And but <laughs> I, I guess, I guess they don't put the shrill ones on. <laughs> on the podcast, <laughs> Well, for the presenters, certainly not, because it is, um, it, it's part of it, it's part of the job that you've got to have yeah. an approachable personality, you've got to have a, a nice voice to listen to, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but then that's understand understandable, isn't it? It's just it's just how the world is. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. It, now, since you were on the inside, I, I do have to ask, there was mm -hmm. that kind of, I'll call it a, I don't know if you want to call it a dark age or mm -hmm. a dark time when there was no interaction between GW and the fans aside from a cash transaction. Yes. Um, were, were you at headquarters at that point or, or no? Um, I was working there during that time. I mm -hmm. remember us finding it very odd that we didn't put any names out at all. That was a strange thing. Um, I think it was um, kind of a, a, it was growing pains into what the modern age is like. Um, mm -hmm. sort of an understanding as to um, kind of I think Games Workshop itself was just basically carrying on the way that it always had done and it just hadn't woken up to the fact that companies at, at that point had started using social media and all these other ways of engaging people and because they weren't do it, uh, doing it it appeared that they didn't care mm -hmm. um, which I don't think is necessarily true they just hadn't worked out how to do it so um, when um, now, like nowadays, with all the interviews and things that are happening, the people being interviewed are still the same people who were there behind the scenes making everything beforehand. Right. Um, it's just now they're making that the realizations come about, and they're now they're making uh, Games Workshop is making this effort to connect with the customers more, um, because there is this understanding that the customers are vitally important. I mean, it, like who who knew that you could 
uh, make a, an international business based off of selling plastic goblins and things like that. Right. Um, it's um, the, the customers are the reason that Games Workshop exists. Um, and like it, it's it's people are aware of it and they want to deliver the best thing. Like, the, the designers of the games just they just absolutely love these miniatures and these games and things like that and they want to share them with the world. Um, so the it, it's like a switch, you know, all of a sudden of like, oh yeah, we ought to talk to people about this through Facebook. Okay, we'll get some people whose job it is to do that sort of thing and to handle that. Um, that's worthwhile having because all of a sudden people are talking to you. It's like having someone standing there staring at you as opposed to actually talking with you. Right. <laughs> Right, I can, um, yeah, I can see that. It, it was like a, a breath of fresh air when all of a sudden um, this community engagement happened. Um, yeah, I think the painting videos were involved in that because it was like a, I think it was the beginning of actually interacting with people. I mean, we, um, the first time we did that was when we had the advent calendar, um, when it was like, what do you want to see? And we opened up an email address for it. Um, so I, I think it's much better now. I think it's much better. And it's good to see Games Workshop catching up with um what the rest of the world is doing essentially like your know, video games companies other war games companies and things mm -hmm. i think in fact they're setting an example for other war games companies absolutely absolutely and and i gotta say i i still not you know i am buying gw stuff not like i used to um mm -hmm. mostly paints but uh i do have to say that they're well now it's four or five years old right their actual engagement um mm -hmm. strategy uh and I got to say that they, you know, there was a long time when I said, I'm never buying anything from GW again. You know, those, those <laughs> yeah. rock bastards, you know, <laughs> you know, well, I can understand that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I got to say that they've, they've, they've softened me quite a bit, obviously. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to buy something from GW and I, my son's interested in gaming now. My, my daughter on occasion is interested in, in doing something. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's, that's all for the good, I think. And, yeah, uh, I think I think we've we've heard quite enough about GW. Thank you very much. And <laughs> okay. we we spoke briefly before we started recording, so mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to put the screws to you necessarily, but I'm sure there are plenty of people who are interested in knowing what's next for Duncan. Uh, well, I I can say I'm working on something at the moment, and um, yes, it'll be video based. I mean, at the time we're recording this, I'm still hammering out the details and things, mm -hmm. but it's not just me going into it. Um, it's actually uh, well, Roger's involved with me in doing these things, and um, we so the painting videos, like I, like I said earlier, I viewed it as putting it on a grander scale of actually showing more people how you get into Warhammer and things. Mm -hmm. What's the next logical step of that? Well, there's a big world out there beyond Games Workshop, right? Um, right. You guys have the question of, um, all right, so you're interested in getting into, um, you just discovered that there's World War Two war games. How do you paint those? So, you know, we want to open up something bigger um, with more things there that's very community based, very customer focused, um, to try and unlock the hobby in bigger and better ways than we have mm -hmm. done before. So that's what's in my future. That's what I'm working on at the moment. And uh, I'm really excited actually to show people what we've been doing. And um, I really hope that uh, it helps people, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've been posting on Twitter uh, photos yeah. of a pretty wide variety of topics. You've posted some Napoleonic stuff. You've posted some mm. World War II stuff. Mm. Um, you almost did, you know, kind of a in the box and then out of the box constructed on a pack 40. A German World War II anti-tank gun. Yeah, yeah, I built that yesterday night. 
So, <laughs> you know, I, I have to ask, I mean, you mentioned maybe historical stuff. What, uh, what type of periods? Well, you mentioned Napoleonics having three armies of Napoleonics, all 25, 28s, I presume. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I've got some smaller ones, too. <laughs> okay. Well, um, well, let's talk about the 25s and 20, or 28s, I guess, for the most part. Um, what mm-hmm. what forces are those? What armies do you have in, in 28? Okay, well, I, I did a French army back when the Perry started releasing their plastic French mm-hmm. infantry. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that for a few years. I eventually, um, I sold them on, actually. Um, I didn't say it was me selling them at the time. Certainly, I wasn't allowed to do that, but I yeah. did you know, yeah. sell on to a person. Um, because what I started doing was um, a newer army with the skills that I'd learned at Games Workshop. So mm-hmm. I have a, a bigger French army these days, um, which is all themed as like the Battle of Waterloo, I, I mainly, but I, I'm not sure. really particular on it. You know, I'm not a rivet counter when it comes right. to that sort of thing. So it's sort right. of late Napoleonic Wars French. Um, I have a Russian army that's themed as from um, the retreat from Moscow. So it's sort of a winterish themed, mm-hmm. uh, more autumn, I guess. Um, Russian army, um, and I've been working on a a Allied army for Waterloo. So it's got some British in it. I've got a bunch of uh, Dutch Belgians that I'm uh, going to be painting soon, and um, I've got some Prussians ready to go as well. So the idea is to create an army that's roughly equal to the size of my French army, um, so that I can set up battles and have friends over. And you know, I, I found myself painting both sides of a lot of art, a lot of sure. these days, um, and this way, you know, I can present the battle so we can do a recreation of um uh, well battle of waterloo i guess you know mm-hmm. um set of hugamon there and have all the stuff around it and stuff um so yeah i just uh i really like that but I, I was actually quite surprised with my posting on twitter that people have been so like surprised that i collect other things um, mm-hmm. i mean i just love toy soldiers so uh, of course i do <laughs> sure, sure. um it, it doesn't mean that I think that they're better than Games Workshop. I don't really think of it in that way. Right. Um, I think if you're looking at it in an objective way, where it's like, well, what's the best model you can buy? I think Games Workshop are pretty much the best quality plastic kits you can get for wargaming. Um, but just because the, there's so much put into them, there's so much money put into them, such like excellent technology designing and the sculptors are all amazing. The painters who present the ones on the boxes are all, they're so talented. So if you're into painting and you want to paint something really, uh, something that's really beautiful to do, then Games Workshop's great, and it's also very easy to get into wargaming via Warhammer. Um, right. But uh, Games Workshop only make Warhammer; they don't make things like Romans or French Napoleonic mm-hmm. Fusiliers or anything like that. So, if you want to collect um, World War Two, well, you got to look at something else. So, who does the best World War Two? You know, it's um, that's so that's how I've been doing things. So. Um, Obviously, I wanted to get into Napoleonics. The plastics that Perry's released were kind of, for me, the gateway into that. And I had to sort of feel it out the rest of the way for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I thought to myself, well, it'd be cool to um, have a go at some other sci-fi things sometimes. You know, what, what's out there? And then X-Wing comes out. Oh, cool. All right, I'll we'll have a go with that. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I've been doing that with all sorts. So I've got medieval armies. Um, I've got ancient armies. Um, obviously, the Napoleonics. I'd like to do, do some... I did have an American Civil War army a few years ago. Um, I've uh, got... Oh, whatever. Obviously, there's like loads and loads and loads of different Games Workshop things. I've got various different sci-fi armies. I've got some different fancy ones. I've got some kind of um, homebrew stuff that I made for a game called 7TV. So there's loads yeah. and loads of things yeah. there. And I'm just excited to show these things. Because there was never any contractual reason that I couldn't show these things. It's more of a professional um, 
thing I thought to myself, it's it would seem irresponsible for me to go and show all these things which are actually competitors, you know. Right. Um, uh, as a face of Games Workshop, I think it would have looked bad to um, be going, oh, look at all this other stuff. You know, it's it, it just comes with the with the job, really. Right. Um, so I'll say there's no con- contractual obligation, but now that I'm no longer with Games Workshop and so I'm not to be associated as the, the Games Workshop guy anymore, um, I thought it'd just be fun to show some of these different things that I have been working on over the years. Um, I, I just I just love my toy soldiers, you know, and I just Fair, kind of want yeah. to show people what I like and what I think is cool. Now, um, just to you, you've really picked, you know, picked at a couple different things. I want to just scratch the surface just a little bit more, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, of course. Now, you had said some smaller. Are you talking like 15 or even 10, 6? Um, well, what I did was um, at Salute, when the Perrys released their travel battle game, mm. I bought that and I painted mm-hmm. that up. And I actually found that uh, playing with miniatures on a really small scale um, for certain periods was actually really fun. Yeah, more in a gameplay perspective, because it gave you the sort of the grand sweep of the maneuver of the battle. Right, right, right. Suddenly became a much more dramatic thing, um, and I wanted to look a bit more into that. So I uh, did some research and I found a board game called Commands and Colors. Oh, um, yeah, you aware of that one? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. If if you look at uh, any given day on Twitter, if you look at me on Twitter, you'll notice that a lot of my posts are either commands and colors based or retweets of commands and color stuff. I love commands oh, and colors. Um, so oh man, it's a, it's a quality I, game. It really is. Yeah. I, at this point there are more game or there are more commands and colors versions that I own than I don't own. And there are a <laughs> lot of versions of commands and colors. Yes. There sure are. For sure yeah. are. Ancient, well, Onyx. To... I, I, I love them all, but go mm-hmm, ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I've managed to collect the um, the Napoleonic set. I've, I've not got like the big epic battles expansions and things. We've got mm-hmm. different nations they've released for that. And I've got the core one for ancients, but I want to get the um, the uh, the Greek and Persian expansion mm-hmm. with Alexander the Great and stuff. I think that's out of print at the moment. It might be back in by now actually. Um, but uh, for if anyone out there is interested in um, a, a commitment free way of trying out Napoleonics, you might want to take a look at their uh, Commands and Colors Napoleonics core set. Yeah, um, it doesn't have miniatures. It's wooden blocks, isn't it, that you play yep. with? Um, but the actual rules for it are they're very simple. They're very fun. They feel like the period itself. Yes. Um, I mean, the way to win the game is to it's kind of you're trying to break the enemy and take their banners, aren't you? Yeah. Um, and there's lots of so Napoleonics has a very kind of rock paper scissors strategy to it, and this game has that in it. Um, so yeah, so I got that. I played it like once or twice with the actual board game itself, and I thought this is great. This is a the cool rules engine that I'd mm-hmm. like to um, turn into miniatures because I want to make it all three D. So what I did was I bought a great big notice board and um, lots of wooden MDF hexes mm-hmm. from um, uh, from Warbases is the company I bought them from. Okay. And I created the battlefield as like a tessellating grid that you could lock these hex tiles in. Yep. And I started modeling on certain tiles, things like hills, towns, trees, and things to represent the forests, rivers, and all that stuff. So I've got this box where you, you take out the tiles and you, you arrange them to create the battlefield that the rule book says. And then the miniatures, I used the Perry Miniature Travel Battle ones, which you can buy okay. separately. Yeah. And I painted them. They're not they're not accurate to one particular nation, but I just paint them to look like so. They're obviously French line infantry or British line infantry, um, and 
then yeah, just try, try playing with that. And it's the kind of, it's such a simple, quick, casual game that I can just set it up and have my friends over and we'll just spend the evening playing this game, running through the scenarios on it. Yeah. Um, so that's the biggest experience I've got of playing with smaller scale things. Um, you know, if any, like I say, if anyone wants to try out an easy way of doing the Polyonic wargaming, take a look at Commands and Colors and Polyonics. Yeah, I have to agree 100%. I, I am a huge, huge fan of Commands and Colors. I got to say, Napoleonics is probably my favorite version of it because it does, mm. it gives a little bit deeper gameplay, I think, than Ancients. Yes. Um, yes. And I, I am a huge Commands and Colors nerds. My, my big project for this year. My listeners are already tired of hearing about it, but I'm going to go ahead and laugh <laughs> about it again. Uh, <laughs> well, since we talked about Lance Connects earlier, I am in a deep, deep Lance Connects uh, fascination right now. Uh-huh. So, of course, starting with that GW Empire uh, mm-hmm. uh, Empire Army that I traded for, well, I've been wanting to do a big, big battle using 28 millimeter figures with the commands and colors rules or a variation. Oh, wow. And so, so that would be, uh, that'd be the stuff of, uh, of dreams, I think for a, a historical yeah, war game. That is, it is a dream project that I've been working on off and on for about five years now. And mm-hmm. everything kind of came together. Um, at first I was going to do, well, I'll do some undead, maybe some Skaven. I have this empire army and we'll do something like that. And then mm-hmm. a guy named Thomas Foss, who runs a company called Skull and Crown Stratagem came out with a line of skeletons that are influenced by the Renaissance masters. So Alric Durer and Hans Holbein and uh, Peter Bruegel, the elder, and they are wonderful figures. They're, um, they're kind of an old hammery style. They're, the other main influence is an old minifigs line called uh, Valley of the Four Winds. Oh, so yeah. they've got a they've got a definite look to them. So yeah. putting the the lines connects against these Renaissance skeletons, um, <laughs> that's I'm, I'm calling the project I'm calling the project Totentance, uh-huh. and <laughs> which means Dance of the Dead. Yeah, and that's that's my big project for the year. Man, that's going to be once you've got that set up and ready to go. That's going to be the greatest like feeling to like present that to everybody and to like have your your players there ready to play it and stuff and all the miniatures ready and ready to go. That's going to be incredible. Yeah, the the goal is a full eight player game, four players per side. Wow. Probably somewhere in the range of eh, nothing huge. Well, I say nothing huge, but you know, four or five units per player. I'm I'm mm. aiming at a convention. A convention mm-hmm. game experience so someone who's never played miniatures games uh is going to be able to step in play the game to its completion and have a good time yeah. and yeah. the spectacle of it is something that I'm, I'm really looking forward to and uh so yeah the commands and colors system is exactly is, is exactly what you're saying it, it's perfect for someone to just step in okay roll these yeah. dice you're looking for green triangles or Maybe swords if it's the right unit, you know, or you know, Napoleonic version. Okay, well, you're shooting an infantry. We'll roll an infantry result. You know, yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and I mean, I, get... I've, I can talk for hours about commands and colors, and in fact, I have. <laughs> so, <laughs> my, my list well, is great. probably tired of hearing it, but that's okay. Well, you get all those armies in the start set, don't you? you get all the, I mean, the wooden blocks, of course. But mm-hmm. you decide that you want to. Okay, so I really like this game. I want to make it a bit cooler. 
Well, you just got to pick your, your range of miniatures and then just start going. I mean, you could go for full 28 mil scale miniatures and just have one miniature represent one block if you wanted to. So it looks like chess-like yeah. at that stage. But well, you could uh, also... Yeah, pretty good aim. Well, the game, you know, the game itself says, you know, there's no set unit scale. Hmm. You know, so, you know, if you wanted, especially for the Ancients, I think it'd work great as a, as a skirmish game. Yeah. You know, yeah. If you're saying, okay, there's four... Okay, these four guys are exactly that. They're four guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and you can, and it's all on how you spin the story. You know, it's all on yeah. how you tell the tale. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I suppose you could pick up a box of Ixrix, Romans of Ixrix, Carthaginians, couldn't you, with that core set for ancients, and off you go. Oh, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's an idea for another time. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear the wheels turning. So. Yeah, man. Oh, I'm always getting ideas. I, I think at the moment I've got maybe five projects that I want to do after I finish my World War II, mm-hmm. and I don't know which one to pick. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, let's talk about World War II, because you have been posting some Germans. And I think you said you're going to have Americans facing them, right? Is that yes. Right? Yeah. Well, what, this year I bought the... Um, so I've gone for Bolt Action, because it's kind of like... It, Entry, so entryways into these um, different historical eras is the tricky thing often. And Bolt Action, I think, is fantastic for doing that. Because if you're familiar with 40k, then you'll understand what Bolt Action set up like. So I don't actually play the game yet. I know the game engine's different and everything. I kind of got a loose idea of how it works. But um, understanding that, all right, collect a thousand point army. You want to have two infantry squads and a HQ. Oh, wicked. All right, I understand exactly what I'm doing. here. Um, so, yeah, so what I did, I bought the, the core set, the, um, the Band of Brothers core set. Mm-hmm. And that has German Grenadiers in it with a half track, and it's got US Airborne, and they're the the late US Airborne, I believe. The um the kind of uh, is it M forty three uniform? Probably uh, World War Two historical knowledge. I'm still learning about sure. it as I go along. Um, you probably know a bit more about it than me when it comes to that stuff. Um, and so I've just been I painted both sides, and I kind of I worked out the points to make them equally matched armies, and my plan is to expand both of them to a thousand points. Mm-hmm. Um. So I painted the Germans first because I thought the half-track looked cool. So I went with those. And um, I've got a plan now to expand it to 1,000 points. So I'm going to end up with something like 20 infantry, a command group, a Panzer IV half-track, some support weapons like machine guns and that that Pack 40 as well. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly on stuff that I sort of recognize in movies and sure. documentaries and stuff, things I'd like. For the US Airborne, I've not worked out what the equivalent of that's going to be yet. I don't, I've not decided if I'm going to have a Sherman in there or not. Um but it's all new territory for me because I've generally not approached. I'd always find myself if I'm doing something historical, when well, I sort of drift towards something more colourful. Um, it's a bit more like what I'm used to. So Napoleonic's, for example, ancients with all the bright colours and shields and things like that. Um, World War Two's always looked very drab to me, you know, very mm-hmm. olive green and things. But um, having learned more about it and listened to more of the social history around it and stuff, it's an absolutely fascinating period. So I thought, you know, all right, I'll I'll take the plunge. So it has been quite fun learning about the differences between the different factions as to what they all look like and the different gear they use and stuff. So I've been having a good time with it. Great. And I've been enjoying Warlord's range of stuff, the multi-part plastic kits they've got. Mm-hmm. It's actually really fun building those. Um, it's quite cool choosing the pose for the model and you get some character coming out then on each individual figure. And Warlord are very good for putting lots of character in the faces of their miniatures. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've been enjoying it. It's definitely new for me. Um, I'm looking forward to giving it my first game a go. Um, I think I'll probably do that once I've done a few more Germans. I think I'll try them out. Yeah. Um, are you still Are you still living in Nottingham then? Um, well, I actually live near. Uh, well, I live in Derby, um, oh, okay. 
but uh, but my girlfriend lives up near Chesterfield, so I sort of spend most of my time going back and forth between those two. Um, I do frequently go into Nottingham for one reason or another, though. So I suppose you can kind of say I live in three places almost. Well, fair enough. <laughs> I was going to say you know you could, you could pop into the Warlords uh, HQ there in mm. uh, in Nottingham, and I'm sure they'd be more than happy to run you run you through their system. <laughs> well, yeah, the I, I do like the the Warlord shops. Great. Um, I, I did. Uh, I went in there. Um, one day, it was shortly after Christmas, I went in to buy some Polish hussars, funnily mm-hmm. enough. That's another army I want to do, a, a sort of oh, 1600 yeah. Polish army, you know, with the winged hussars. Oh, sure. Um, so I went in to go and buy a box of those, and all the staff suddenly, like, like looked around and I walked in, and I was like, hello! They are like, what, what, what are you going to do? I'm like, oh, I can't tell you. But <laughs> 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 well, they're all lovely in that shop. They're all really nice. I've had a, a, every uh, Warlord person I've talked to has been lovely, and I've had, uh, yeah, I've... I, if someone's interested in trying out some historical stuff, they can't go wrong looking at Warlord. Sure. Um, now, the great thing about doing historical armies is mm. you can use them for multiple rule sets. Yes. Um, so one, once you get your once you get your toes, you know, once you're comfy in the waters of of historical via Warlord, there's there's certainly plenty of other other systems you could explore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They all offer different things. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. I've actually been pondering to myself this last week because uh, when I posted those um, French cuirassiers on Twitter the other week, mm-hmm. uh, I had a couple of people asking me or, or saying that they wanted to get into this period, but they've got no idea what to do or where to start. I can understand that because I think um, with a period like the Polyonics, often it's incomprehensible because mm-hmm. the people who are into it demand massive armies to get the feel of the you know, the time. And the rule sets are often very complicated. Um, Black Powder is an excellent game to learn it with. Um, mm-hmm. It's very casual. It's very light. Um, but you need quite a few figures to play with um, Black Powder. Right. Um, and if you're coming into it from Warhammer, it can be a surprise about how the rules are sort of a toolkit where you kind of choose what you want rather than being told what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking about it. I actually think if you wanted to try out those times, then the best thing to do is to take a look at some of the Osprey books. Have you seen those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they're blue books. They've, uh, yep. They are not aware. They're kind of, um, they're quite small books. They're, what, a, um, A5-ish in size. And uh, they offer all kinds of different games, but they've got some really good ones that I built in this engine that started with a game called uh, Lion Rampant. Right. And um, an army will consist roughly of six units or less, and those units will usually be 12 or 6 figures. So it's a very simple kind of number to aim for. And they've got one called Rebels and Patriots, which is mm-hmm. themed on the American wars. So it's like the um, War of Independence, for example. But the rules are, um, like the units are just line infantry, grenadiers, shock cavalry. So it's very easy to pick the faction that you want right. and to assign the appropriate miniatures to those units. So if somebody wants to have a go at Napoleonics, then you get yourself, uh, decide whether you're going to do British or French, for example. Get yourself the relevant box from Perry Miniatures. The French one is a really good one because you build the models in a certain way. If you go with that, you end up with a unit of grenadiers, two units of line infantry, a unit of skirmishers, add a cannon, you've got a full French army, and you're ready to play this very nice, easy-to-learn game. Right. And if you're going to expand that into a larger battle, Black Powder, where you've got a good core starter army, add a few extra units, off you go. That's right. So I kind of think... Um, I, I, I think I, I, this is, like I was talking earlier about breaking down barriers. That's one of the things I'd like to be able to do to explain to people if you want to get into ancient wargaming. Well, what what do you do? And to go, oh, well, take a look at this rule set. Build your army like this, play some games, you're in. And you mm-hmm. go, From that point on, it's your choice and you'll understand what you're doing. All right. Ab- absolutely. And, you know, these are all great entryways into the hobby. And, yeah, yeah. you know, once, once you're, like I said, you know, to use the euphemism of, or the analogy of 
swimming in those particular waters there's you know there's other there's mm. other parts of the lake to explore you could say Absolutely. and some of them are deeper some of them aren't some are you know some are mossy and it's all depends on how you how you like to feel so yeah um now you did mention some different sci-fi and fantasy projects you've been working on what are what are those ah, yes okay well for sci-fi um i so i did some x-wing um and i've been taking a look at armada for quite a long time but mm -hmm. uh, i bought star wars legion i bought the core set for that and i got an atst and some more stormtroopers and uh, that's fun because star wars is fun you know it's very recognizable um, it's another game i've not played yet but uh, i've actually enjoyed the models and mm -hmm. I've seen a number of people kind of concerned about them being soft plastic, like the original models being soft plastic. Mm -hmm. um, they're actually very nicely detailed, I thought. Um, I had a great time painting those. I need to do the Rebels, really. Um, but that's something that I've ended up having to do other stuff since I painted that core. For, I basically painted the Imperials from the core box, plus yeah. a few reflective bits and pieces. But I keep thinking to myself, oh, Death Troops have come out since then. You know, I've yeah. had some of those. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I think it'd be fun to expand a bit on that. But again, a fantasy game that I found myself actually really liking is A Song of Ice and Fire, made by Cool Mini or not. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's a game I picked up kind of... Um, actually, I saw it at Adepticon, and I thought some of the models looked pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And so I looked more into it and online, you know, and I had a look at the, the Lannister Halberdiers and Lannister Guardsmen and then the Knights of Castle Rock, and I was actually, yeah, actually, I really like that. It's it's a fantasy human army, but it's got a very historical flair to it, which is mm -hmm. something that really appeals to me. Um, so I bought the core set and just set about painting it. Um, once I finished painting the set, I started playing it. You know, again, I got uh, I painted both sides, so the Starks and Lannisters, and I got some friends over to have a go with it. And it turns out it's actually it's a really well designed game. It, it's really fun. It's definitely it's gamey. So mm -hmm. uh, in terms of there's there's almost three games going on at once, and this is definitely builds into the theme of it. But you have a hand of cards, so it's a little bit. Um, if someone's familiar with playing Magic: The Gathering, mm -hmm. it um, it's got a similar kind of thing to it. Lots of keywords and combinations and things, but it has the feel of a, a grand scale battle with units and maneuvering and things. Right. And you always feel like you've got lots of options of things that you can do. And part of them are, as I say, with the theme, it's kind of a sideboard that's like a tactical board, and it represents the Game of Thrones being played before and during the battle. So you can have things like you can target an enemy unit and force to take a morale test with all these penalties and things. And as a Lannisters, your army is actually very good at doing that kind of thing. And it represents the fact that your army's been paying them, the enemy off not to fight you, like in the Wars of the Roses, which is what Game of Thrones was based on. Right. Um, it's the same sort of, you know, that's um, political intrigue, trying to beat your opponent off the battlefield so that on the battlefield you can soundly and decisively beat them. Um, and it turns out it's just actually really fun. It, it's, it represents that sort of thing very well. It always feels like you've got something to do. And it's um, the, mon the armies don't have to be enormous. They're maybe like five units or so, plus some political characters and things. Mm -hmm. And every time I've played it, I've had a blast. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, if someone's looking for a new game to try out, I definitely recommend you take a look at Ice and Fire. The miniatures are soft plastic ones with hard plastic weapons and things. So the weapons don't bend or anything like that, but you might have to do some mold line removal and um, heat models up a little bit so you can bend them back into their basic sure. position. But sure. I think they look great. I really do. Once they're painted up and on the battlefield, I think they look absolutely fantastic. Let me let me drop a bomb on you real quick if you're not aware. <gasps> yeah. Fantasy Flight Games did a version of Commands and Colors called Battles of Westeros. Yes, I am aware of this. Okay. I missed it, unfortunately. <laughs> as far uh, as I know, they don't make it anymore. Yeah. Well, the I'm I don't I would imagine they don't, but I'm sure mm -hmm. you could get a copy somewhere. 
and mm. the, the the mechanisms are pretty much the same. The dice are different. It uses mm. uh, eight sided dice instead of six sided dice, still with the symbols on them, you know. Yeah. But the combination of those Simon figures with the commands and colors play style mm-hmm. that could be that could be a winner in a, in a half. Yeah, that could be really fun. Really, be really spectacular. Fun. <laughs> the figures that that were included with the game were pretty good, and they did have some some expansions as well. But mm-hmm. they were more the one seventy second kind of twenty millimeter size. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to step that up with the the twenty eight mill stuff that'd be that could be pretty spectacular yeah yeah well absolutely well i think um that just having great miniatures is a really good stepping stone for mm-hmm. uh, taking the game at least the way that i do it so you know I'm, I'm into the narrative side of things right and i know that ice and fire has got a very competitive gaming community to it and i think cool Mini not approach it in that way um, with a view that um if the system holds up well in a highly competitive environment then everything else sort of derives from that mm-hmm. um that's a, it's a way of looking at it that I've not really encountered. I don't think Games Workshop necessarily view things that way. Um, but for me, I just want to play it casually, so I want my army to be themed. So I know there's some strange combinations you can get that don't reflect the uh, the IP of that world. Mm-hmm. Um, like you can have House Bolton troops fighting with uh, Dolthraki, for example, which is kind of weird. Um, but I think the, um, the actual engine works so well that I kind of want to take it in that narrative direction. So... Um, a thing I want to do is to create much more scenery for it, and I want to do it quite thematic. So they've got um, the Targaryens are just coming out um, just this weekend, in fact. Okay. And uh, so their arm, their core army is just Dothraki horsemen, and in their, their background, of course, they've got these open grassy plains and things. So I'm thinking, you know, what scenery could you do to make to reflect that? What kind of battlefield can you make to reflect that? And then if you start tying these games together, do you do do you get one of those jigsaw puzzles of Westeros and use that as a campaign map, maybe? Um, and do a short campaign where the houses are turning on each other and stabbing each other on the back and stuff. I think sure. that, it, I, that's the kind of that's the sort of level of gaming I, I like the most. Um, I've experienced that with Warhammer Fantasy, uh, with a campaign I played for that a few years ago, and uh, those games just really came alive for for myself and all of my friends who were in this campaign. And I really want to do something like that for these other systems too. So I think Ice and Fire has got the potential for that. Um, I, I keep thinking about a campaign system for Black Powder as well, like a Napoleonic sort of campaign system. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel I'm rambling a little bit as this idea sort of like falls out of my head. Okay. <laughs> um, but I find so I find if you're playing Black Powder and all you've got access to is a six foot by four foot table, the game works well when you have 10 units or less on the board um, for 28 mil scale anyway. And yeah. you um, enforce the rule. It's, it's in the um, the invasion of Russia supplement they do for Black Powder from Warlord, um, where a unit I, you, I imagine you're familiar with basically how Black Powder works. Yeah, the base. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's um, the the thing is. Um, so yeah, so those listening, if they've not played it before, you essentially when you the, the core system of the game is you announce what you want the unit to do, and then you roll some dice, effectively a leadership test in Warhammer terms, to see how well those orders are carried out. Now, a really good rule that this supplement instigates is that if your unit ends up moving more than once from this order, you can't shoot. So this slows the whole game down because you don't want to advance too rapidly because then you lose your firepower. Um, so if you have that and 10 units less, uh, 10, 10 or less units, then the, the game works on 6x4. Um, so I was thinking, all right, so if you had that um, and you, that kind of works out as two, three brigades. So if you take one brigade as the unit thing and you call that a core, and then on your map you have these cores maneuvering as separate things, you get that Napoleonic flavor of these cores moving separately and then combining for a battle. So your objective might be to take the enemy capital, which is on the far side of the map, 
both players have access to four or five core. You write down what each of these are, and then the course of your games will determine, you know, you have the units available that are actually in that area when the battle happens. So I think that could lead to a really interesting short and sharp campaign where you're actually trying to eliminate the enemy units and then take their right. capital. So I think, yeah, that's something I definitely want to explore. I think that could be a really fun uh, project to run. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, the the mindset of the players is is paramount. So yes, um, you know, just getting the getting the right folks and that's together. And that that's really what a large part of this hobby is: is getting the right people in the right place mm. to do to do fun things. And because there is yeah. that social aspect that you know, some we sometimes forget about it. You know, there. Yes. Uh, well, like I said earlier, you know, it's the contract. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely recommend if you if you're a gamer out there who's um, it doesn't matter what game you're playing. Let's say Age of Sigma, for example, and you've got some friends who are playing it in a, the same sort of way that you do, and you want to try <clears throat> something different, um, then try running yourself just a simple map campaign. And it can be as simple as printing a map on a piece of paper, or you could have a go at um, like drawing one and uh, or get some corkboard modeling one in three D with some plaster if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and represent your armies with little markers on the maps and kind of set yourself an objective that we're going to be playing um, six turns of this campaign and the winner is at the end of it the person who controls most of these large locations. And right. then you know the players kind of narratively move their armies around and uh, just see what sort of narrative that leads into because I think you'll end up being quite surprised. You're going to end up with combinations of armies that you wouldn't expect to have as well, which turns out to give some really fun uh, flavor on things. Yeah, um, there's been games I've played where um, so it was a Warhammer Fantasy one, and I ended up um, that one of the players was about to achieve this really great objective, and myself and an ogre player rocked up and were like, right, we've got to stop him. Um, but of course, I was playing as Bretonians, he was ogres. We don't like each other. We got we had issues in this campaign. Right. So a few turns in, it's a case of who's going to betray who. <laughs> so like you know, and it, it's it, it's suddenly the tension starts going as both of you are looking at each other like you know. Do I declare my charges first? Because then he might charge me in the back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was really fun. And uh, like, of course, everyone expects me being the Bretonian to play like completely honourably. Um, but uh, it, it's easy to find honour in different ways. It's like, yeah. well, those ogres have no honour, therefore I should show them no honour. I'm going to charge them in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, these are the kind of things that that they're. This is the, the most exciting part of this hobby, I think, is when you you have that communal thing. And I mean, my friends and I with this campaign, we always we still talk about these events that happen to this day. Um, we had a 40k one. We actually played the Horus Heresy, and okay. the Ultramarines turned out to be the arch traitors in it. So rather oh. than Horus, it was Dorman. And the player playing as the Ultramarines really got into character of being evil. And uh, he had a librarian who was his equivalent of um, Corferon, you know, or, or Erebus, you know. Uh, manipulating things behind the scenes mm-hmm. and so we had this battle that was an arena of all the people he'd captured and he was sitting on this big like skull throne of death watching them fight for his amusement <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a storm raven gunship came flying in to save the day and like you know one of the players charged up the assault ramp and fought the pilot in melee and they you know, took over <laughs> and, you know flew away dramatically it was like a like the arena in attack of the clones just like yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> yeah these things i, I think I, I see why people like doing competitive games, but for me, there's much more life and fun in these kind of narrative things where you sort of just share these stories with your friends. Sure. Um, yeah, it's like doing a role-playing game in a way, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's that sounds like a, a blast and a half for sure. And oh, taking, it was so much fun. Yeah, take taking something like that, and yeah, you you wouldn't expect the uh, Ultramarines to go that way, but you know what? I guess mm. that's the whole point of the Horus Heresy. Nobody expected that, right? 
Yeah, well, I didn't tell my players at the time about how I was going to work this out, but um, well, not not in detail anyway. But I told them that you know I'm going to have three turns of going into this area of space conquering planets, and um, at the end of that, then you know chaos is going to influence them. So what I was doing was just counting up how many victory points each player had, and the winner of the campaign was the person with the most victory points at the end. But mm -hmm. at that stage, the person with the most, well, that's the most successful primarch. So that's who the chaos gods are targeting. Right. So yeah, it just happened to be Willerman. <laughs> <laughs> I really hoped, and I, then we started doing mini games to see what were the Primarchs he corrupt to his cause. So it'd be things like rock, paper, scissors for one of them, or yeah. you know, or riddles or things like that. And he ended up corrupting the um, uh, the World Eaters and um, the Sons of Horus, which was me. Mm -hmm. um, I was kind of hoping the World Eaters would stay loyalists because that'd be just really funny thematically. Yeah. <laughs> That's outstanding. Yeah. That's outstanding. Um, I want to shift gears real quick um, mm -hmm. and just talk about from an artistic standpoint, are there mm. any artists or painters that, that inspire you? Like not just when you're, you know, not just in your formative years, but who continue to inspire you with their imagery and their artistry. Um, so I think, um, I think to pick out an artist that really I find um, his art was absolutely beautiful is Karl Kaplinski, mm. um, and in fact both Kaplinskis they, they they are extremely talented artists. Um, their artwork is absolutely beautiful, um, and you can see some of their pieces on front covers of some historical miniatures. Um, for example, um, so the Perrys sell Russian line infantry, and the art on the front of that is a Karl Kaplinski piece. And uh, what's happened is one of the infantry has just been killed and is going down and you can see all the soldiers reacting to it but this the russian flavor is that they just they were um uh, the, the french after battles would be kind of like it's like you had to push them over to make sure they were dead they just wouldn't ever give in mm -hmm. and you can see that character in this picture it's it's absolutely beautiful i love it um they did art for ice and fire as well um, mm -hmm. i believe it was Beth that did those and um they they're stunning they they just bring it to life for me i absolutely love their artwork i definitely recommend people check out what they do um, when it comes to painting miniatures, um, so I could point to, I think, uh, so there's a studio called Mystic Spirals, who uh, they do commission painting and stuff, but they paint miniatures for the Perrys. So okay. um, I've seen a lot of their things on the Perrys website when it comes to, you know, showing the miniatures. They've got a very clean, um, bold style about them. And uh, so I think they're very nice. I like seeing that. I, I want my historicals to look like that. Um, but uh, on a personal level, um, so there's so many amazingly talented people at Games Workshop and I found mm -hmm. them so inspiring um, seeing the things that uh, they've painted. So Anya Wettergren, for example, um, painted Archaeon, um, Ever Chosen, uh, Grand Marshal of the Apocalypse. It feels like he's compensating, doesn't it, for the title that he's got. <laughs> <laughs> but that miniature on Dorgar, you know, the three-headed big dragon version of Dorgar, um, is just the most beautiful paint job. Um, I can remember actually when we saw that in the photograph uh, photography studio at Games Workshop for the first time, and uh, Roger and Roger called me over. He's like, "Look at this!" And so he stood there looking at it. Then Roger says to me, "You've got to paint that." Good luck. Slaps him on the shoulder and walks off. Like, Come back here. And <laughs> <laughs> um, they, the, the heavy metal team are, they're incredible. They're they're so good at what they do, and there's loads of them, um, loads of them working on things these days. Um, but the models they come out with are always breathtaking to see. Um, on a more personal hobby level, um, I find Chris Peach really inspiring. Um, he's got such an imagination for creating things, so many things, so many things that over the years he's painted. Um, he's only shown a fraction of it on the internet with people. Um, 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 
it's when you see the things he does, it just um, right right from when I was first getting back into the hobby and end up working at retail, the stuff that he's painted has such character, and he paints it in such a simple way. You know, he approaches it in a very um, it's actually genius when you see how he explains how he does it. And he takes what looks like a very complicated colour schemes and he just does a few things. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, paint that in no time. Like, uh, I've seen him, um, so he's like me, he's got a private hobby that he does his own things. I've mm -hmm. seen him paint Napoleonic miniatures in no time whatsoever. Um, he's, yeah, it, the, the stuff that, and you obviously see his Warhammer things. These are things he puts like so much love and heart into. And um the character that comes out of it fits the narrative of what Warhammer is so well. Um, I'm always really excited to see a new army or a new project that he's done because it always makes me think, wow, I want to do some stuff like that too. Um, he's More recently, he's been talking a lot about Warcry and doing little themed Warcry warbands. Okay. And each of them is completely unique and the choice of bits he used to create it is just genius. So yeah, those are, those are the people I'd say. There's lots out there and uh, I, <laughs> yeah. sorry i can't say them all uh, uh, even like all sorts of people there was um like you can find inspiration in anything there was a guy who tweeted at me the other day a comparison between the first model he painted versus one that he painted when he got back into it a number of years later yeah i saw that, and yeah, that he'd learned stuff from video. yeah yeah that stuff that i find that kind of stuff really inspiring it's wonderful to see people learning and progressing and getting better absolutely absolutely i, I think you know inspiration is a great place to end our conversation mm. for now <laughs> I, I hope I certainly hope that once you have gotten uh, your new uh, your new endeavor underway, we can revisit it and see how things are going. If that's all right with you, I would love to. I'd love to tell people all about it. Yeah, once it's up and going and uh, it, it's running, um, I'd love to share people like why we've done things the way we're doing them, and um, and yeah, it, that'd be great. That'd be wonderful. So with with, uh, with that, Duncan, thanks so much for uh, agreeing to come and talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm very welcome. I'm looking forward to your uh, for new. I'm looking forward to your new endeavor with uh, Roger. And I really wish you the best. Hope things thank really work much. out for you. And thank you very much. If uh, if people want to know um, what we are getting up to, I'm going to be um, putting it on Twitter. So I'm at Two Thin Coats. Um, I'll be uh, writing everything there as and when it happens. At, absolutely. So. At two thin coats, uh, will yeah. There's there's an underscore between the two and yeah. uh, two thin and then thin coats. Yeah, yeah. Or just look for Duncan Rose, I guess. Yeah, definitely look for the for Duncan's Twitter handle in the show notes, which will which will come out. And Duncan, again, thanks for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, look forward to seeing what comes out. And at this time, as always, if the war game you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun. That is all. The Veteran Wargamer is copyrighted JRN 2020. Music courtesy of freemusicarchive.org.